The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. That's good. Your wife's, I'm sure, very happy about that. All right, this morning... We are continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. We'll be in Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, let's begin by reading together uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Paul writes, Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy... And he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us all in future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believed, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us new in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Let's begin with prayer. Father, we do want to just uh, stop for a moment this morning and quiet our busy lives. Uh, Lord, we all have a lot going on, and each day fills itself with distractions and things that demand our attention. We want to stop and put all that aside just for a moment this morning and really turn our ears uh, to hear you to hear you speak to our hearts by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we know that uh, it's not my words, it's not not just a message, but we really want to hear from your Holy Spirit. And that's the only way we can grow and truly have a revelation of who you are. So we ask that this morning you would reveal yourself to us, speak your heart and your words to us, give us the message that comes from you by your Holy Spirit. So we just trust in you. Uh, We turn our hearts to you now in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This really is just a wonderful passage about God's grace. And uh, one of the problems with a lot of our Christian words like grace is that we use them so much that sometimes they really lose their depth of meaning. And so Paul uh, does a great job giving us a picture in this passage of what grace is really all about. And it's a great message. Uh, In this passage, it also really wrestles with the opposite of grace, which is evil. 
the wickedness and sin of our own lives and of this world. And, um, you know, one of the problems that uh, oftentimes unbelievers have, and actually oftentimes we as believers have, is this, this truth that there is evil. And, uh, you know, you've all heard this, you know, if, there's a, if God is loving and good and powerful, why does he let evil come into the world? Why are there evil things in the world? Honestly, have any of you ever asked that question? If God is good, why is there evil? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. I can guarantee you every one of your unsaved friends has thought that question. Every, every person I've ever shared Christ with who's not a believer, that comes up. If God is so good, then why does he let so many bad things happen in the world? In fact, it's kind of the modern defense against God. I don't want a God who does such bad things. You know, this God's supposed to be loving, but he's let evil come in, so I don't want to follow a God like that. Well, how do we answer that question? Uh, how do we tell people that God is loving and good and there is evil in the world? And those two things coexist uh, with some purpose and some end. Um, well, Paul really helps us answer that question. Now, it's an answer. I'll, I'll give you up front, okay? This is, an, this is not an answer that your unsaved friends will buy, okay? And it's not that they won't buy it. It's just they can't understand it, okay? This is an answer that is really for our benefit, Okay, and it's an answer that explains the problem of evil in the world from the perspective of believers. So don't, don't think you're going to go out with this and be able to blow people away with the wisdom of this because they'll look at you like, what? <laughs> All right? But it is nonetheless a good answer. It's an answer that for those of us who walk in light and truth is true for us. And it is truth about the character and nature of God and his grand design for the universe. And it does explain why he has allowed evil to stay. Uh, really, you know, the problem with humanity in this question is that when people ask this question, why is there evil in the world? The first problem is that they, they define it poorly. In fact, I looked up in the dictionary, you know, online, how, how evil gets defined. You know how it's defined in the dictionary? Evil is harm or pain or misfortune that comes to us. That's how they define evil. And how many, I won't ask you to raise your hand, but you can shake your head. How many of you agree with that definition? Evil is harm, misfortune, and pain that comes to us. Yes? No? Sounds good? Maybe? Well, uh, that's not the biblical definition of, of evil. I'll tell you that. Okay? God defines evil as everything that's not him. Everything that is not his character and nature and purpose is evil. All right? Uh, you can make a pretty strong argument that Oftentimes, pain is good. Uh, if, if I have pain and it forces me to go to the doctor and I'm diagnosed with a disease, was the pain evil or was it good? Right? That's a horrible definition for evil, that evil is pain. And really what people are saying is, evil is anything that robs me from enjoying my selfish, materialistic life. Okay? Is that really evil? Right? I can't have my you know, 99-inch big-screen TV because I had an earthquake and it broke. And so that's evil, right? Even though I'm wasting my life watching it, that's not evil, right? But if I, I'm harmed, see, that's evil. See, the world's confused about what evil is because they define it wrongly. Second problem is that people in the world see evil as something out there of which they are a victim. As we'll see in this passage, that is not the case. The reality is we are evil. 
Evil is us. You know, they're saying, you know, I met the enemy and the enemy is me. Uh, the problem is not the evil out there. The problem is the evil we brought into the world are inflicting, are inflicting on others around us. Right? That's evil. Uh, and that's the problem. So, so Paul helps frame all that, and it really becomes the backdrop for what grace is. All right? So let's look at these verses. Um, and, and the reality is, it is important for us to understand evil, its cause, and its scope in order to understand grace. Most of us, I think all of us, my, myself, I don't really understand grace, really, because I don't really think I'm evil. I don't really think I am worthy of uh, the worst punishment, right? So therefore, grace doesn't mean much. So Paul puts this in perspective. In this passage, Paul is not... Paul is just stating mere facts here. In verses 1 through 10, he is just stating the way things are. There's nothing in this passage that invites us to do anything. He's not telling us how we should live differently. He's just stating reality as it is. Okay, biblical truth of what the world is, how we are, and how his salvation is. So let's see what he says. He says, first of all, um, and I like the New Living Translation. It makes it very readable, but... Uh, but literally, the, the verse starts like this. We being dead in sin. Again, I'm going to stick with that because it's not real, it doesn't flow real smoothly. It's kind of bad English. I'm going to stick with it because um, later on there's a parallel phrase. So we're going to start with that. We being dead in sin. Uh, he starts there. And he's talking about every single human being, all of us who are in Christ now, before, in previous times, we were being dead in sin. Okay, if you're an English teacher, I know it's bad grammar. Uh, we, we could say we were being, but you can't say we are being. But in Greek, you can. So we are being dead in sin. And meaning, in the very being of our existence, we are continually in uh, sin and death. We are, we are being dead uh, in sin. Uh, literally, we are under the power of death. Uh, the wages of sin is death. And we're not just dead, but we are under death's power and in its grip. Okay, everybody around who is not a believer is walking dead. Walking death, all right? Not physically, although physically they are moving step by step toward death. Death is creeping in every day. Everybody take a big deep breath. So you're breathing in death. Isn't that great? Especially if it's in Thailand in January, right? Just breathing it in. Every moment, you know, the body is becoming more dead. And one day, you just don't wake up anymore, right? Um, but spiritually, we're already all there apart from Christ. We were born dead. We were born separated from God, cut off from Him, because we are living in a state of sin. And the main point of being dead is that when you are dead, you can't have relationship. You can't fellowship. You can't commune. We are dead. We cannot have relationship with God. Uh, you know, well, I won't go there. You could come up with some really kind of sick, morbid jokes about having conversations with dead people. I won't do that. But we are in that state in relationship to God. And we can't communicate with Him. We are cut off completely from Him. We can't, we can't visit the place where God dwells, right? We are dead. And there is nothing in us 
that can in any way connect with God or change our state of being. Okay, when you are being dead, you can't just wake up from being dead one day and decide to be alive. Okay, it doesn't work that way. When you're in a state of death, there's nothing you can do to change your condition or state. Any more than if you had woke up dead this morning, uh, which of course you couldn't, but if you could, wake up dead this morning, you can't say to yourself, boy, I'm feeling awfully dead today. I think I died in my sleep. I'm going to drive myself to the doctor and see if they can prescribe something. And you can't do that. If you're dead, you're not driving to the doctor. Okay, nobody else is driving you to the doctor. There's nothing you can do to fix this, the condition you're in. And that's the point. We were in a state and condition that we could do nothing about. We were cut off from God, separated from Him. We were in sin. And there's absolutely nothing we could do to fix or change it. That's dead. Uh, and we were dead in sin. Uh, this is an important word because later he talks about our salvation being in Christ. And there are two parallel ideas. Our death is in sin, just like our life is in Christ. Uh, the cause, you know, the cause of death on the on the death certificate, sin, right? And Paul lays out sin in three different areas, and he really talks about sin's dominion over us in three realms. The first realm is the dominion or the power of sin that exists in society. Literally, it says in the in the age of this world, this worldly age. We live in a society that is, that is sinful and evil. Uh, the reality is sin is not some cosmic force out there that God is throwing on the earth. The reality is human beings as a society and as a collective group are evil and we do evil. And we pass laws and create societies that are inherently evil. Now, they don't harm people. You know, every society has laws against murder and theft and stealing because that's evil, Right? But reality is everything about society is, is not reflecting God's nature. We just find socially acceptable ways to be selfish and proud. All right? um, and my theory is, this is my theory, that we don't see it in our own culture very well, but if we go and live cross-culturally, we see it painfully well. Right? Uh, for me, and I, I apologize in advance to those of you who are Thai, and those of you who drive like Thai people, Okay, because uh, when 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 I come to Thailand, I I see utter selfishness in the way people drive. Right? You I just the, just the other day I was sitting in this very long line at a U-turn. You know how traffic gets jet backed up. There's the U-turn, 50 cars long, and I'm waiting there, and the guy in the front's not going, and and a guy pull, decides he's not going to wait anymore. 50 cars is too long, and he pulls out, and he drives all the way to the front of the line and just whips in front of everybody and just cuts in. And I'm thinking, that's just the most selfish thing ever. You don't do that. That's just evil, right? Right? Now, of course, to them, it's not evil because it's culturally, it's socially acceptable. You can do that here. And I'm just ticked off because I didn't do it. Right? I had the chance, and I didn't do it. Right? Right? See, we can see it in other cultures. We don't see it in our own culture because that's the function of it. Our culture says all this stuff is okay. You can be, in the West, you can be materialistic and spend all of your wealth on yourself. That's okay. We won't read those verses that say, God has blessed us and made us generous so that we can share that wealth with the poor of the world. We skip that one. See, we cut to the front of the line on that one. 
and we live selfishly. We don't see it, see. We live, we live in a world where everything around us is reinforcing our sinful lifestyle and saying it's okay, all right? Saying what you're doing is the way you're supposed to live so that we don't even see evil as being evil, right? We think we're okay. And so the world looks at once in a while there's evil in the world, not realizing they are the source and cause of all evil, that we are inherently evil because all of our society, you know, misery loves company, and so all of us sinners get together and tell each other, oh, you're not really doing evil because I'm doing the same thing, so it can't be wrong, right? So that's the first uh, influence that, that drives us towards sin and death. Second influence, he says, behind all this is the prince of the power of the air, that human beings apart from Christ are under the direct dominion of Satan and the forces of darkness and evil. Uh, that these are the forces behind society behind sin that satan is he is evil okay he is inherently evil satan is everything that god is not okay he's the complete total opposite of god uh, god is everything good loving pure holy right wise satan is in every way not god right and so he is evil uh, not because he brings harm but because he represents everything that's not god so whereas God is wise and knows always the right thing to do, Satan is foolish and always does the wrong thing. God is all-powerful and his power is creative. God makes new things. He creates universes and worlds and people and human beings and life. Satan has a false power and it's only the power to destroy and bring chaos and ruin. Okay? Uh, when I was seven in seventh grade, 12 years old, I was a full-blown juvenile delinquent. And uh, I felt very powerless and weak and really ripped out by the world, and I was angry. And so my way of getting back at the world was to exercise my power by vandalizing everything I could get my hands on. Right? But that's not really power. It's weakness and cowardice. Satan is, is out to destroy what God has created. That's evil. All right, so all the way down, Satan is the exact opposite. And he has had influence since the garden, uh, influencing human beings away from God by deceiving them, right? By putting thoughts in their minds that, uh, that drive them away from God, as we'll see in the next section. So we're under this power uh, of Satan and his evil forces, which he says uh, is, the, is the spirit at work in the children of disobedience. Uh, all of us, apart from Christ, are the children. That's a Hebrew, uh, Hebrewism, Hebrew idiom, meaning we're characterized fully as disobedient people. That's Satan's aim and goal, that we would just, in every way, disobey God. And that's what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, God told you to do this. I have another way. You don't have to do that. You can do this instead. And so from the beginning of time till now, Satan's goal is to work in us a spirit of disobedience that we would not follow God, that we would walk away from him, walk apart from him, so that even people doing good deeds in this world, it's evil because it is not, it's not God's good deeds. They're not following God's purpose or plan or program. They are self-righteous, doing their own thing, following their own path, in opposition to God, no matter how good it looks by our own evaluation of it. 
Uh, finally, and, and at this point, it would be very easy to say, well, those are outside things, and I can resist those things, right? I can, I could fight off those things. Those aren't me, right? But Paul doesn't let us get away with that. And finally, he says in verse 3, that uh, on top of all that, we are carrying out the evil desires of our own flesh. We are dominated by the influence of our own nature. Our own nature is bent towards rebellion against God. We're not only children of disobedience because of Satan's influence in our life. We're children of disobedience because we are controlled and dominated by our own evil desires. Now, it's very important to make this distinction. Desire in itself is not evil. Okay, the whole Buddhist concept that desire is the source of all evil is not 100% true. It's partly true, but not all true. All desire is God-given. Okay, God's the one who's the author and creator of all our desires. When God put Adam and Eve in the garden, he made them hungry. He made them have a desire for knowledge, for truth, a desire to be like God. Interestingly, Satan, the deceiver, threw all those things back at them. He says, I can make you like God. I can, I can satisfy your hunger. This, this fruit is appealing to the eye. I can satisfy your desires. The downfall is that Satan's plan is to satisfy those desires apart from God's purpose and plan. That's disobedience. Okay? So instead of fulfilling our desires through obedient, an obedient walk with Christ, uh, our flesh is to do it by the short way, the shortcut apart from God. And uh, we can't blame society. We can't blame Satan. Ultimately, we are evil beings because we want to do wrong. We don't want to wait for God. We don't want to wait for our desires to be met His way. We want it, and we want it now. And we want it our way. And so we are, we are absolutely, as Paul says in Romans chapter 7, we are dominated by our fleshly desires, our, our nature within that wants to satisfy our cravings in our own way, at our own time, right? And so as a result, uh, he says finally that we are ch- objects of God's wrath. We are children or objects under wrath. Uh, the, the bottom line is we are evil. We are controlled by evil. We are trapped by evil. We are the source and cause of evil in the world. We are not against Satan. We are allies with, with Satan. We are allies with the, the world. Exercising and carrying out evil in opposition to God and disobedience. And God's right response to that is to judge in wrath sin. Uh, we were, he says, objects of God's wrath. We had a rightful place to be punished by God. Okay, and that's where the death part comes in. Uh, death is being condemned and sentenced to eternal separation from God as punishment for our sin. The wages of sin is death. The penalty, the price of sin is death. Um, now, a lot of people have a real problem with God's wrath. Uh, and it's which is kind of ironic and a bit interesting because... Really, we don't have a problem with God's wrath as long as it's being carried out on people we don't like, right? The, guy, the Thai guy that cut in front of me, you know, and did the whole thing, man, I wanted him to get a flat tire. I want judgment, right? We, we instinctively 
sense the need for justice in the world. Right? God's wrath is simply his just and right response to sin. Okay, God's not some angry kind of, like we picture anger, uh, out of control tyrant who's just moody and grumpy and every time somebody kind of sets him off, he goes into this ballistic rage. Okay, God's not like that. In fact, as we'll see, God's anger and his love are absolutely intertwined and connected. God never, and, and you've got to understand this, God in his being is, is one. Okay, important theological concept I can't really explain, but it's, it's true that there's nothing divisible in God. In other words, God being God can't sort out his parts. So God can't be angry one day and loving the next. For him, his attributes are all so intermixed and intertwined that they are one thing. His wrath is his love. Okay, and they're very much connected together. Well, how does that work? Well, it's real simple. Uh, we as a, I, well, I as a parent understand this a little bit. Uh, if, if I see one of my children, especially when they were little, if one of my children was getting thumped on, by one of my other children or by a friend or neighbor or whatever, my immediate response was what? Wrath. Wrath. I wanted to bring justice on the one hurting my child. Why? Because I'm an angry, out-of-control person? Well, partly. Uh, but, but deeper than that is I love my kids. And that love causes me to want to protect them and to see them in a place where there is justice, where there is right treatment, right? So I respond with a certain wrath to protect them. That is the right response of love, uh, to protect those we love. God has created this world and he loves it. He loves everything and he loves every human being. And anytime any of us wrongs or harms another human being, we are wronging one of God's children, and that makes God angry. That is his right response out of his love for those that we've hurt and wronged, right? Now, the problem is we don't see our evil as all that evil. And so I told a little lie, and they had a little problem. You know, it's not a big deal. Why is God kind of overreacting? See, because we, we live in a society that's telling us you're really not that bad. You're not that evil. You know, you don't drive like they do. You're okay, right? And we don't see how offensive our life is to God. And we don't see the harm that it creates to those around us. And ultimately, the harm that it, it brings upon the name and honor and glory of God. So it is God's right and loving response when we sin to, to execute justice, to bring condemnation and to put us under his wrath. All right, None of us would feel right if uh, you know, some horrible murderer, some serial killer, you know, stood before the judge and the judge says, yeah, I, I'm really not a judge who believes in this whole justice thing. I'm a loving judge and I'm going to let you go because I love you so much. And none of us would see that as love. And it would be gross and immoral in the hands of God if he operated that way. Okay, his righteousness demands a right response to evil and that right response is always anger and wrath and judgment. Okay, the punishment of sin, but it's always loving. Okay, it is always his loving response. So, so that's where we are. Uh, we are creatures, every single one of us born, are deserving of God's punishment and wrath. Uh, and uh, 
his punishment and wrath is a horrible thing. Uh, the, the, the judgment that sin has brought on us by our own doing is horrible. And it is severe. And it is something that in an eternal lifetime, we can never satisfy or pay back. Right? That's what it means to be dead. That's what it means to be dead in our, in our sin and rebellion and disobedience. But thankfully, it doesn't end there. Uh, the next verse, verse 4, says, and in the Greek again, it says, But God, being rich in mercy. So we are being dead in sin, but God, being rich in mercy, has changed all that. Uh, and the focus is on, again, not on what God does so much as what He is. It is His very being, His very nature, His very character to be merciful. And it's real important to understand that uh, the whole time God is, uh, by, by His nature, having to respond to us with justice, He never stopped loving us. Okay? The whole time He has been a God who has been rich in mercy. The word mercy really has the idea of somebody who looks on a, a poor, pathetic, helpless creature and feels compelled to do something good to help that person. When God looks down at us and realizes our state and our condition as dead in sin, under wrath, he is moved with great compassion and kindness and mercy. And not just a little mercy, but it says he is rich. He is rich in mercy. In other words, all the evil in the world, uh, he, his, his richness of mercy is that much greater, Right? His wealth far exceeds the evil that is around us. Um, and he's incredibly rich in his mercy towards all human beings. So in his God being rich in mercy, and he loved us so much, literally it says that he, because of his great love that he loved us with, it is his very being to be and to respond lovingly. So even though we deserve wrath, God, in the richness of his being, has responded with love. And in that love, it says, even though we were dead, and that's a key thing in verse 5, even though we were dead, while we were dead. It's important. I think a lot of times we think God works like this, that, well, yeah, God is angry at sinners, but he loves us Christians, right? He loves us, but he hates, he hates the bad guys, because that's how we are, right? We love good people, and we hate the bad guys. That's not God. It's very important to understand that when God says he is rich in mercy and he is loving uh, with, with this love, he's not talking about Christians here. He's talking about evil, wicked, sinful people. God is loving every single human being on this earth right now. And he is extending to them his love and his mercy. Okay, he loved us before we were believers. When we were sinful people dead in sin. Okay? Very important to understand that. It's not that God is angry towards this group and they're full of wrath, but, you know, we're saved, so he loves us. No. God is, at the same time, knowing he must respond with wrath, but at the same time, moved to love them and do something to change their condition. And that was us. Before we came to Christ, he loved us. And he was rich in mercy toward us, so much so that it says he saved us 
um, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. Literally, it says he saved us together with Christ. And in this verse, he uses three words that all begin with the same uh, prefix in Greek that means together with, together with. So it says that he saved us together with Christ. That's interesting because it implied that Jesus needed saving. Okay, he didn't save. It doesn't say he saved us through Christ. Literally, it says he saved us together with Christ. Well, when did Jesus need saving? Well, the truth is that Jesus uh, became dead also for us. Not just physically, but in every way he took on our sin and the judgment and wrath of God and put himself in a place where Jesus himself needed saving by the Father. He died on the cross. He took on the weight and punishment of our sin. And if God had left him and abandoned him there, Jesus would have been in serious trouble. He would have stayed dead in sin, just like we were dead in sin. But God reached down and he saved Jesus. In love and grace, he lifted him up out of the the wrath and judgment that he was under. And it says that that same love that saved his son, that protected and preserved his son, we together with him were saved in Christ. And not only that, it goes on to say that we were raised up with Christ. When Jesus raised up from the dead, we together with him were raised up to new life in Christ. And not only that, it doesn't stop there. For most of us Christians, it stops there. We know the cross part, we know the resurrection part, but it doesn't stop there. It says that we have already, already done, we have been raised up and seated with Christ, together with Christ in the heavenly realms. Last week we talked about that place where Jesus sits, and it's a place of authority and power over all the powers of darkness and evil. Paul is here stating just simple facts. Okay, He's stating the way things are. If you are in Christ... You have been saved with Christ. You've been raised up, resurrected with Christ already. And you now have life, new life because of that in Christ. And you are seated in the heavenly realms over the powerful forces of darkness that rule this world. Okay, now, of course, it does look forward to heaven as well. It does look forward to the day that we die. We will, we will be with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. But it's not only future. And the verb tense here is one of present reality. Okay? I know you're all sitting here kind of enduring another sermon on a Sunday morning. You know? But also, you are seated in heaven with Christ over every single power and authority that's trying to ruin your life. Right? Is that cool or what? That is cool. It's powerful. It is life. It is the richness of God's grace. You guys didn't just kind of partly save you, so you kind of slog through life as kind of a, a, a loser who used to be pretty evil, now you're just partly evil and kind of living out your days until you know something better comes along. No, God has raised you to the very highest possible place of power, authority, and honor in Christ. So where we used to be in, in sin... Now we are in this new reality, this new place called a relationship with Jesus Christ where our life and his life are intertwined together in a powerful way that we can't explain. How was it that we were raised up with Jesus? Well, I don't know how that worked. When we weren't even born yet, I don't know. Paul doesn't really explain it. It's probably one of those big things that, you know, we can ask God in heaven. 
But somehow our life is identified with Christ and we are in some way participating with Jesus in, in his salvation, in his resurrection, and in his rule, even now. There is some way that we participate and share together in that experience with Christ. Okay? So we are saved with Christ. We are seated with Christ. We are raised up with Christ. So now we get back to the big question. Okay, you're saying, okay, you're going to tell me why there's evil in the world. I'm not getting it yet, okay? Why is there evil in the world? Well, this is what Paul says. He says the point of all this, okay, the reason that this has all happened, like the, the real question is why didn't God just do something, why didn't God just go into the garden and like grab the snake and bite its head off, you know? And that would have made an impression on Adam and Eve. They would have got the point. Ooh, okay, the serpent's bad. We get that now. We'll stay away from the snake. All right? Why didn't God do something? Why did God hand it over to evil? He could have stopped it at the garden. He didn't. He handed it all over to evil. Why did he do that? Why? Well, Paul says this is why in verse 7. He did all that so that God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. Can you get that? Why, did, why is there evil in the world? Well, there is evil in the world because God wanted to demonstrate the full extent and depth of his love. And the only way he could really do that was to show the full extent and depth of evil and allow us to fall full headlong into it and become completely under its grip. It's kind of a test for God. It's kind of a test to, to test and measure the depth and size of God's love. How, how far will God's love go? How big, how wealthy is God in goodness and grace? Well, God says, no, I can really plummet the depths of the extent of my love and grace is to allow, is to create people that I love dearly, that are created in my image, that are objects of my dearest and deepest affection, and then to allow them to fall into absolutely utter darkness and evil, to become my very worst enemies, to become everything against me, to be in every way disobedient to me, and then to step out and love those people infinitely with the riches of my wealth and to save them and to do this incredible work of grace in their life so that for all ages to come, and the picture there is of just like, like uh, waves rolling in off the ocean, that each new age that rolls in, each new era from all eternity, for all eternity future, God will hold us up and say, this is the extent of my love and grace. These people are an extent of my love and grace. Now, I, I, I don't think we really get that, and I don't think we'll really completely ever get it until we get to heaven. But I don't think, you know, well, I, so what I want to do is I have a show and tell, okay, to try to help us get this, all right, because this is really important. So I have a show and tell. So if you go to the next, um, and actually maybe we could turn off this bank of lights as well, Ryan. Because these pictures are really cool, and they're not cool if you can't see them. Um, in, 
Uh, you can just leave them all off. Actually, it's good with them all off. And can somebody close that curtain? No, never mind. No, that's not. That's, you can't close it. You can't close it. <laughs> Trick question. Um, you know, God has created this incredible universe, and more and more with the Hubble telescope and some amazing tools we now have at our disposal, we can get a glimpse of really how incredible God's universe is. And uh, this actually, they call this, this is a, a galaxy far away. Um, and it's actually called, if you see in small print, it's actually called the Grand Design Galaxy. I love that, the Grand Design Galaxy. Uh, God's universe is a display of God's grand design and power. And this galaxy, they say, is in form and shape much like the Milky Way galaxy in size, and these spiral arms. Uh, it's a great picture of kind of where we're orbiting through space. Okay, go to the next next slide. This is, uh, they, they took and turned the Hubble telescope towards the center, that real bright center of our own Milky Way galaxy. And, and this is what they found there, okay? There are, if anybody wants to count, you can afterwards. There's 180,000 stars in this picture, in that picture. 180,000 stars um, in the center of our, of our galaxy, okay? And they are beautiful, just beautiful. Next, next picture. This is another uh, galaxy. It's actually... Uh, called just the spiral galaxy M101, you know, good old M101. It is twice the size of the Milky Way. I think the Milky Way is about 90 million light years across. I have no idea how big that is. It's like really big. This galaxy is twice the size of the Milky Way. They estimate that it has a trillion stars. A trillion stars, okay? How much is a trillion? I have no idea. I, don't, I can't wrap my mind around a million. And like a trillion is so far beyond a million, it's, it's mind-boggling. A trillion stars in this one massive galaxy. Okay, next one. This is a, a nebula. I think it's the, uh, called Carina Nebula. And uh, the cool thing is that these nebula, some of them, they can see they're still forming stars. And if you go to the next slide, they kind of zoom in on one little tiny speck of this. And all those little bright dots you see are stars that are actually being formed as brand new stars. Isn't it beautiful? And this is this massive, huge cloud of dust. I'm talking about a really huge cloud of dust. Millions and millions of light years. Uh, I mean, millions and millions of miles. Actually, this little chunk of real estate right here is something like 97 trillion miles. All right? It's just dust forming into stars. Beautiful. This is not a painting. This is just a picture of space. Okay, next one. Oh, okay, this is the coolest thing ever. This is two galaxies. Uh, the one on the right, okay, and uh, with the hole in the middle. Okay, God is just too much fun. Because the reason it's got a hole in the middle is because the galaxy on the left just shot right through the middle of it. Like, God's a really good shot. Boosh. Dead center. Just took it right out, playing marbles with galaxies. Okay, millions and billions of stars, just like that. This is the coolest thing. Okay, next one. My last show and tell. Um, this is what they call deep field. If you've ever gone to the Hubble side, this is one of the most impressive of all. They took the Hubble telescope and they pointed it at a speck in the sky. It would be the equivalent of taking a one-bot coin and holding it out uh, 60 feet away about 20 meters. Okay, so imagine a piece of sky the size of a 
one bot coin at 60 feet. Okay, they pointed the Hubble telescope at a piece of the sky that small for two solid weeks and looked as far deep into space as they could. And it yielded this, this picture. Now, all of those are not stars. Everything, every speck you see there is actually a galaxy. In this one tiny little speck of space, there are 1,500 galaxies. 1,500 galaxies, okay? In this tiny little speck of space, all right? Now, let me ask you a question. Are you turn the lights back on? Or you can leave them off. I don't care. Um, how rich is God? How rich is God? Okay, the universe, it says, the, the heavens declared the glory of God. Dev, David had no idea what he was talking about when he wrote that. He had no idea what he, what he said when the heavens declared the glory of God. How rich is God? Okay, I mean, he, he creates billions of galaxies with billions to trillions of stars each. Okay, is God ever going to run out of anything? Never, Okay. Uh, it's a great picture when, when and, and Paul uses language here that's like over the top trying to explain the wealth and abundance of God's mercy and grace. When we look at the universe, it's a great picture of the incredible wealth of God. Okay, when he creates things, he does it big. And you can ask the same question. Why did God create all that stuff? Up until, you know, up until 1920, we really didn't have a telescope big enough to see outside of our own galaxy. So up until 1920, up until just not even 100 years ago, nobody knew all that existed. Why did God do that? I mean, why? And there's still, you know, if there's 1,500 galaxies in this little tiny little speck, imagine the billions of stuff out there we, we, we don't see. Why would God do that? Well, it, it's a display, a demonstration of the awesome wonder and magnitude of God, right? And so it gives us a picture of when God says he's wealthy and when he says he can do anything, he, he means he can do anything without limit or end, right? Uh, secondly, uh, and if you ever get the chance to go on the Hubble site, just Hubble.com, there's just hundreds of images like that, and they are beautiful, spectacular. And there's something just glorious. You know, when God creates... It's kind of funny. You look at what God really created and you compare it with Star Trek. Okay? When they go zooming through space in Star Trek, it's boring. The stars are all the same. The galaxies are all the same. They're just little white dots go zooming by. Okay? Kind of retarded, right? Uh, when you compare it with what God really did, every galaxy, every star, every nebula, they're all just incredibly different and grand and glorious. Why? Because God wants to demonstrate his glory. He's a God of magnitude and wonder and incredible create, creative genius. And he knows how to make beautiful, uh, incredible things. And they're just out there. You know, most of it we'll never see in this life. But God's just extravagant when he does things, right? Well, that's, that's the show and tell. What's the point? Well, the point is this. What God created in, in space is Nothing compared to you and I. It cost him nothing to do that. Okay? It cost God nothing. He could do that, you know, create universe after universe after universe. He just speaks it and puts there. And it doesn't cost him anything. He didn't have to go to the bank and take out a loan to do that. Right? It cost him something to show grace. It cost him his son. Okay? It cost dearly. 
to to demonstrate, to show mercy. All right. So what you see there, the the wealth of that is nothing compared to the wealth it took to express kindness and mercy and grace to us. Okay. Not only that, but in all eternity, we shine with a radiance and glory that is infinitely greater than the universe. Right. Because he didn't, I mean, he did redeem the universe because when we fell, it all fell and he did redeem it all. But we're the focus of it. And when he says that we stand for all eternity, uh, demonstrating the super abundant wealth of his grace, okay, we shine with a brilliance that is infinitely greater than anything, anything in space. Uh, we will stand for all eternity and people will stand with, with absolute awe and amazement at the thing God has done in us. Just like we are amazed by those, those pictures. Infinitely more, all of creation, all the created universe will stand and gaze upon us with awe. Look at the wealth of God's grace that he's poured out towards these people who did not deserve it. Okay, that's why there's evil in the world. All right? That is why there's, there's such, you know, that's why people drive like they do. Right? That's why Americans are materialistic. That's why there's sin. That's why there's brokenness and fallenness. So God could display his glory. All right? Now, that doesn't work with an unbeliever. Okay? They're not going to buy that because uh, they don't see the depth of their sin or the grandeur of God's love. But they will one day. One day in eternity they will see it. And they will stand in awe at the wonder of grace. Um, finally, he sums it up by really speaking of the, the work of grace in our life, summing it up together. He says, very familiar verse, you know, uh, by grace you have been saved. Uh, it's not of our own initiative. It's not of our own work. It's not of our own good deeds. In other words, this work of grace is absolutely, completely, totally a work of God. Okay, and, and from Ephesians 1 to, to now, that's been the whole point of it. That it is God's work. Just like creating the universe was completely a work of God. Uh, we can look at it and take pictures of it. doesn't mean we created it, right? In the same way, God's work of saving is, is grace. It is something he has done of which we have no part in earning or deserving or working for. So there's nothing in you that initiated it. There's nothing in you that, that moved God uh, to save you other than that he felt sorry for us. He was moved with compassion because we were so pathetic. There is no work on our part of keeping any law, of being a good person, that has caused God to show grace to you. So it's so important that we know that. Because if we, if we realize how loved we are, but we think we somehow are better, and so God loved us because we're somehow better, and that's why he loves us and he hates the world. See, that makes us very proud, evil people. Okay? The point of grace is that it was completely a work of God, and we did not deserve it. And we were them. And it wasn't for grace, we are them. 
But not only that, it doesn't stop there. He says he did all this, uh, making us new creatures in Christ, a new workmanship. Uh, it was a work of God with the grand and final result that we would be uh, doers of good deeds. Okay, and Paul just has such perfect balance in this whole passage. Uh, keeping the law, doing good works, doing good things can never earn or merit God's saving grace. It comes completely separate from anything we've ever done. However, we are saved to good works. We are saved to do good deeds. We are saved to walk in obedience. If we're saved and we're still walking in disobedience, well, we're not very saved. And again, Paul is talking here in the things, the facts of the matter. He's not talking about the struggles we all have and how this all actually plays out in our daily lives. He's just saying the way it is. You were saved by grace unto the good works that God prepared for us before he made any of it. Well, what are those good works? Well, it would be really easy to make them the same good works that people try to exercise before they got saved, keeping the law. I've got to go to church. I've got to give a tithe. I've got to read my Bible so many minutes a day. I've got to be polite. <laughs> you know, I've got to follow the tithe driving laws. You know, that's not what he's talking about. The world does those things, and they are absolutely evil and wicked. What is he talking about? Well, I believe that it's the good works that God does. We are to be obedient by being, no no longer being dead and being sin, but being the very life and heart of Christ. Which ultimately, in, in the context of this passage, means that we are people who now show grace to those who don't deserve it. I think I'd rather stick with just reading the Bible and going to church. Because showing grace to people who don't deserve it is not easy. But that's the good works God's talking, Paul's talking about here. Going to people who treat us horribly and loving them. Forgiving those who have done terrible things to us. Showing kindness and mercy. Actually having compassion on evil, wicked people who are everywhere around us. Who are everywhere around us. This week... You know, we're our foundation, part of the thing, we're trying to help people. That's what we do as a foundation. We try to show God's love by kindness. And we, we heard about this, uh, little, this girl up in a village far up in the mountains um, who is in a, kind of a very abusive situation, very poor, not being taken care of. She's, I think, 15. Uh, a stepdad who there's some suspicion is sexually abusing her. Horrible stuff. And the government actually asked us if we could help this girl. So we're trying to help her. Met with the mom, trying to get them out of this horrible situation. And we agreed to help with her schooling this next term and with the eventual goal that she would come live at Bonson Rock and really be in a much safer place, get a better education. So we'd, we asked the mom, what does she need to go to school? She said she needs 6,000 baht. Okay, we'll give her 6,000 baht for school. Well, we called the school to ask them what tuition costs. They said, well, this is a totally, completely government school. These are all poor people. It doesn't cost anything. A thousand baht. So here's this lady we're trying to help ripping us off, right? Well, I'm not surprised. You know, that's why we called the school, right? Uh, well, do you show kindness to this lady? Or do you say, well, you know, you lie to us. We're not going to help you. No, you show grace. You love people who are daily trying to rip you off and cheat you. That's the good work. Showing God's heart to those people all around us who are stepping on us and spitting at us and hating us 
Because that's exactly what God did to us. Exactly what God did to us. That's grace. Let's pray. Father, we do just want to be um, moved and and really impressed uh, by gazing upon the extent and depth of your love and your grace. And Lord, it really is true that we can't really understand love or grace. We can't really see it in its fullness until we take the time to look at the wretchedness and wickedness of our own life. Until we really own how truly worthy we were of your wrath. And Lord, perhaps grace has become cheap because sin has become so small. So Lord, we pray that you would both give us a greater sense of the horror and evil of sin. Not just sin out there, but the sin that, that, that once dominated our life. And that still often causes us problems. But Lord, we don't want to stop there. We want to see all that in, in light of your grace. Uh, but God, being so rich in mercy, loved us with this great love so that even though we were still dead in sin and in rebellion against you, you showered us with this incredible grace. Lord, give us a greater sense of that every day so that we would understand it and so that we would be able to become that kind of grace that kind of love in the world around us as your hands and your feet bringing your mercy to those who so desperately need it. Lord, we just thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. I must have so many-